Good morning, I'm Alex Mosed, and you're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. I'm joined by Nick Johnson, co-author with me on the book Modern Monopolies. Uh, and this morning we have a special guest uh, who I'll be now announcing in a, in a moment. Um, and we're going to have a nice, meaty conversation um, about what's going on in California. And uh, we've spoken about it a number of times here uh, in the past where California passed um, this uh, AB5, Assembly Bill 5, into law. The California governor signed it into law. Um, and so we're going to be digging into this. I'm joined by Catch founder and COO Kristen <coughs> Terrell, um, based out of Boston. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Um, so I wanted to just kind of give a little uh, background on, you know, on what's going on here in California um, and then also get a little bit of background on Catch and, and what you guys are doing, why, why you uh, certainly have a, an opinion on uh, an insight on what's going on here. But so this, this Assembly Bill 5 was passed uh, in September. And basically, the way I would describe it is it is really tightening uh, the rules and classification, or, or you could say actually broadening um, what classifies as an actual employee, you know, a W-2 employee of a business. And so what it's done is specifically around these gig-based, uh, what we call service marketplaces, service marketplace businesses like an Uber, Lyft, DoorDash in particular, and others. Um, the 1099 gig workers that they had, the, their producers, as we call them, in, in their marketplaces would now be classified as employees. Um, and that poses a number of difficulties and challenges for their business model to remain viable uh, in the state of California. And so we're going to dig more into exactly, well, what challenges does that present? Why is that an issue um, and, uh, you know, there's now a petition that, that, that Uber, Lyft and DoorDash have, um, put together to, uh, to rally against this. Um, A, did I so far describe that all correctly? And B, could you tell us a little bit more about Catch and, and what you guys do? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think at the high level, that's exactly right. AB5 is basically saying, um, the default is that people are employees, and that they are traditional W-2 workers unless you're part of a small number of exemptions that have been carved out to allow for people to have traditional contractor status or 1099s. Um, so at Catch, what we do is we build a portable benefits platform for people who don't get benefits through work. So many of our users are 1099s, but we also see a fair number of W-2s. So I think it puts us in an interesting position uh, because we're serving anyone who doesn't get traditional employer benefits. That's tax withholding and retirement health insurance, really a lot of those things that traditionally come from HR, but there's a large and growing workforce that doesn't have access to an HR benefit system. And so they're responsible for, for setting that up and managing that themselves. Interesting. So you could still be a W-2, but let's just say, you know, hourly or minimum wage worker doesn't come with all the, say, full benefits package that one would traditionally expect. That could also be, um, you know, a user that you cater to. Yeah, so about 20% of our active users are full-time W-2 workers, but they don't receive benefits. That could be because they're set at a certain number of hours. It could be that they're out of small business. Small businesses don't have the same requirements for retirement and health insurance. 
Um, about 20% of our users are also a W-2 and 1099 mix. So that sort of combination side hustler where they have a mm -hmm. W-2 job, but their some income as a contractor. Um, so about 40% of our users earn at least one W-2 a year. Interesting. Okay. And very interesting. So, um, so what we have going on here is we have Uber, Lyft, DoorDash. They've each committed $30 million each. So collectively 90 million bucks. Um, and now they're trying to, California's already passed this. Technically, this is a law. It hasn't gone into effect yet, but technically it's been signed into law. Um, and so what they're now trying to do is saying, well, we're going to go directly to the voter. We're going to put this ballot measure uh, directly on, you know, the, the voters uh, roster of things to check off or not check off. And so they're putting this $90 million. Uh, there's rumors that Instacart might also chip in, but we'll see. Um, but they're putting this $90 million to try and educate voters in California about this alternative approach. And I have some of the bullets here that I can just recap. So they're saying that basically their, their gig workers would make at least 120% of the minimum wage. That's interesting. I don't really know how they would, um, uh, like actually come true on that, but okay. Um, Reimbursements for gas and vehicle wear, healthcare subsidies um, for drivers who work 15 hours a week or more, different kinds of insurance um, that you can see here spelled out, and um, a cap on driver hours per day. It, it, it kind of looks like a different package, or it's it's like a package of benefits um, that they're saying, hey, we're going to provide these things to drivers. Or, or our gig workers, if, you know, it's an Instacart, for example. Um, but we're, we're trying to help the worker. Here's an alternative, which doesn't uh, now classify these, um, these uh, workers as employees. Um, now, let's back up when we were talking before we, uh, before we went on. You, what is your opinion of this AB5 bill um, and, and how it actually all sorted itself out? So the, the one sentence overview is well-intentioned, but poorly executed. Um, and I think the, the fundamental misunderstanding to expand on that a little bit is to say that the government seems to imply that W-2 worker status equals worker protection. And I think that's just fundamentally an incorrect assumption. Ask anyone who works at Walmart, ask anyone who works at Dunkin' Donuts, like retail, food and bev, there are plenty of W-2 jobs that do not have a safety net is one of the reasons my company exists, right? So I think that the state sort of took this, um, you know, what is it then everything you have, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I think it's kind of one of those situations where they used a very blunt object, which is W-2 classification and said, well, we need worker protection for this group of people. The only thing we have to do that is to say, okay, you're, you're a W-2 now. And I think that the, the unintended consequences of that, just to start with focusing on the platforms, the unintended consequences of that is that it will fundamentally change the structure of work for a lot of people who have opted into these roles for flexibility. It's not to say these workers don't need protection too and that they should have to sacrifice everything for flexibility, but it is to say that forcing people to work certain hours, forcing people to work in certain locations or certain times will mean a lot of people who depend on this income will no longer be able to work these jobs. So I think this proposal um, that, you, that you just outlined is really interesting. It's actually the first time that I've heard the details about it, um, but I think it's a really interesting to say, well, maybe there are more tools in our tool belt than just a hammer, mm -hmm. and maybe there are other ways to have the outcome of protection 
without just saying that the the status of W two is what we need to have. Yeah, so let's let's unpack that a little bit, right? Um, why you know what is wrong with AB five against the platforms? Uh, so I mean, the reason why this would kind of make their business model untenable with something like this in effect is just from the economics of it. Well, now they have to. It's more expensive to uh, uh, deploy or use the same labor. Now they need to pay, pay uh, payroll taxes. Um, they need to have uh, workers' comp insurance. They need to have um, other kinds of standards in place that, if you are having the, these people classified as employees, it's just going to, in general, raise the cost profile. All of those things come back to cost. Um, which don't have the same cost structure when you're in 1099. So I think that's probably the biggest reason, selfishly, that the platforms are saying uh, this just doesn't work. The other point that you were making is that for the actual drivers or producers, it actually does hurt their ability to actually work on the platform because a large, a large amount of these people are just doing this for incremental income are just saying, hey, I'm home. I have some free time. Let me pop on Uber and go make some, you know, an extra 50 bucks or whatever it may be. Um, and so it removes, when you say flexibility, or it removes that flexibility, that incremental, uh, you, you know, earning potential where now it needs to be mandated by the platform. It actually doesn't really make it much of a platform anymore. So it may, it's, it's mandated by the company to say, you need to work these hours in these territories, and here's your shift, basically. And, and you, the other problem you get into is if I'm Uber and I have to do all that, I can now say, well, you can't go work for Lyft at the same time. And you're taking away some of the flexibility of some of these workers to actually switch mm. uh, if they say, hey, I don't want to work for Uber today, or I'm you know, Uber increased its rates, I'm going to go work for Lyft. If you're an employee, you lose a lot of that flexibility, too, which is yeah. the downside. Yeah, it's very where they have three phones on and they're just constantly kind of optimizing and basically they they never miss a beat. If they're in the car, they're, they're getting a ride uh, pretty much most of the time. So um, yeah, those, I think, I think that all makes sense to me so far. Um, my, you know, what my gripe has been and, and, and you obviously are much closer to this audience of, of, of people that need these kinds of benefit plans. But um my thing has been the two biggest gripes of the gig economy worker is one, um, I have no say when the platform increases its take rate on me. So, hey, Uber was taking 20%. Now they take 22% or Lyft. Actually, Lyft literally just did this for their earnings report last week where they don't disclose GMV, the total amount of the rides. They only disclose their revenue and their revenue is a function of take rate from the throughput. And so they they can increase their revenue. Even if GMV stays the same, they can increase their revenue by just increasing the take rate, which is what they did. Um, and uh, and the rider can't do anything and you're just subject to them, especially now that we're seeing ride sharing become a more mature industry where there really are mainly just two players, Uber and Lyft. So that being the one big gripe. The second gripe is there's no recourse for if I get in trouble on the platform. If a driver reports me or, you know, if I have a low rating or, you know, the platform decrees that I have done something wrong and penalizes me. There is no third party independent review system in place. I'm lucky to even get someone on the phone um, to actually rebut that. And that could be, especially if I am a full-time driver or if I, that could be a very big 
negative impact to me because I'm just trying to get someone to give me a fair shake. Um, those are the two biggest gripes, at least from what I've heard. Um, what say you? Would you agree with that? Uh, or, or, or are there other major drivers that, um, that disagree with that or counter that? Um, I, I think that that aligns with a lot of things that we've seen. Um, I, I think that the, the ability to be back on the platform, the ability to have sort of, I guess, for lack of a better word, like negotiating power in the relationship is certainly what's missing. And I think it's where that's where the good intent from AB5 came from, right? Mm. Like the good intent for the union sitting behind it was this idea of we do need to create some sort of collective power. Um, but I think the thing is we're operating in a totally different world. And to say that the old models of, of unions and W2 work status are the appropriate, um, I guess, collective bargaining that this new class of worker needs is, again, a little bit of a, of a misfit. But I, I agree. I think that the collective bargaining is a big piece. We sort of see a different side of the problem, which is more from an indiv individual level. People lack access to some sort of safety net. So one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that if you only earn 1099s, you actually don't qualify for unemployment insurance. Mm. And it makes sense because it's kind of hard to tell, well, are you not working by choice or are you not working because you can't find work? And so all of these gig platforms in general have really blurred that line of like, what is unemployment, right? When we talk about the national unemployment rate right now, I honestly don't know what number we're talking about because there are so many people, like you said, who do small amounts of incremental income from one place and they do it sometimes. And yep. so what do we even consider full employment right now? So the individual then is sort of lacking access to this protection, unemployment insurance, basic disability insurance, right? Some of those things. And I think we see that people are just very vulnerable. So even if they are working and everything's going okay, they're sort of one injury or, or one false step away from having having nothing and having no means to sort of protect themselves. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, what what I have thought that the, the ballot measure was going to be, maybe it was a little too audacious. And what had originally gotten me so excited about this, what we might have seen out of these platform companies, is the contemplation of a new labor class, uh, a labor class specific to the platform model, these kind of gig economy jobs, um, which actually spans across the whole spectrum. We've spoken on the show about uh, people that just create content for social media or for YouTube as a living and you can earn an income and, or, or and individual sellers on an Etsy or an Amazon. There's, I mean, practically in a lot of the things you're talking about, uh, Kristen, in terms of the lack of protection and safety, that applies to a lot of these, you know, individual sellers or small businesses operating on these other platforms. Right. They also have the lack of recourse and that, that lack of protections and consideration basically for this whole new class of what we would call platform producers, basically workers on this platform isn't just, an Uber and Lyft problem, I think it stands out there politically because that's the one where the W-2 versus 1099 classification uh, is most stark, but it's a, it's a big problem beyond just that. Right. So what my hope was, was that they were going to actually go all the way and say, hey, you know what, 1099 and W-2, they both don't work. We need to have a new labor class um, for, the, for the new economy. And I'd heard some rumors that that was kind of on the docket. Uh, ultimately, it didn't pan out that way. But have you seen that or have you been involved in that conversation? What, I mean, what, what's your uh, view on all of that? Yeah, so people talk a lot about the third category of employment, right? Like what's the, what's the third category? And I think that is also based on a false assumption, which is to say that the two categories right now are W-2 and 1099. 1099 is not a worker class. It's an income class. 
it's a way that you earn income. There's a bunch of different 1099s you can get, some of it from lottery winnings, some of it from inheritance, right? Investors earn 1099s, like they often earn a 1099K, like for VCs and stuff. So 1099 is not a worker class. And the only worker class we have right now is W-2. So a lot of the arguments that I've heard against this, call it the third category, right? But this, this new class is that it might create what's called a race to the bottom. So the idea that basically whatever class you're in now, you'll sort of get bumped down. And if you were a W-2 who had all of these benefits, you'll become this new class and we'll try and push new class to sort of full contractor role. Um, and that's sort of where a lot of the big organizations, especially ones that tie into sort of traditional benefits. So we see a lot of the like the large players that sell 401ks and things like that take a pretty strong stance against a new category. I think there are obviously financial motivations <laughs> related to that. Um, but I think the concern of sort of saying, how do we ensure that not everyone just sort of slides backwards is is legitimate. But I think, again, that's based on this idea that 1099 right now is a worker class and it's not. So this is me personally not speaking for catch, but like my personal opinion is that we do need a category that defines the way work is now, which is based on the idea of an individual earning income, mm. right? Like you can earn income in lots of different ways, like you're saying, selling on a Etsy shop. And, and too often, I think we um, have built our business infrastructure to say, okay, well, then you should become an LLC. And our opinion is that like people are people and not like not everyone should have to become a company in order to earn income and in order to have like access to quality products like SEP IRAs and things like that. So there's a there's a gap between like the okay, I'm an individual person earning income and like, well, now I have to become a small business, like a small business of one in order to be able to earn income however I want. So I agree there's a need for a new category. I don't know if I have a great answer for like exactly what the bullet points would be of what it looks like, but I think it's it's pretty clear that we're, we're certainly missing some things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, we'll see where, uh, where all this, where all this nets out. Um, but very interesting in terms of the role that catch is playing in all of this seems like a great opportunity. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Kristen. And, uh, we hope to have you back and, and to follow the progress of the company. Thank you so much. That was great. I mean, I think this topic isn't going away. It's only getting started. And um, there's going to be a lot more on this as we see what happens in California. And oh, by the way, if, the, if California is successful, <laughs> this is only going to trickle along to every other state. Right. As we've seen Facebook, where Facebook had the FTC settlement, and then all the states are now coming after Facebook. I mean, it's, it, it, it's just, it's like, um, California what is, is it, whack-a-mole? A huge part of their business, and it's often a leading indicator when it comes to stuff like this. So if... As you said, if California is successful, there's even if it's not, uh, it's going to have ripple effects uh, to a lot of other places. Absolutely. So um, I want to play a little segment. We had, um, again, big news last week about uh, Microsoft's Jedi contract beating out Amazon. And so I was joined. I, I joined the CNBC folks uh, on the Power Lunch show. And um, we're going to kind of play a little snippet about that um, and then and then touch on that topic. We didn't get to it last week. I think for Amazon, the question, Alex, is, is are they at a point now where they are, in fact, losing share, that they might have to compete on price uh, and the growth of AWS may not be as vibrant or may never be as vibrant as it once was, sub 40 percent growth? I mean, um, we've seen the growth slowing, but still Amazon has a lot of headspace beyond Microsoft number two, Google Cloud number three in the space. I mean, I think the one part about the Jedi versus the difference about the general kind of AWS or Azure business is this idea of a network effect of these kind of app ecosystems, right? So 
That means that there's a winner-take-all dynamic if you look at an AWS or an Azure. And uh, Amazon's still the clear leader in that. I think the DoD puts less of an emphasis on the value coming from this third-party app ecosystem, which wasn't factored in as much as it might be from a traditional business or, or commercial customer. They go on to ask about, uh, is it a big loss for Microsoft, I mean, for Amazon, all these kinds of things. Um, and, and basically, my short response to that was, I don't know, I think it makes sense where if I'm the DoD and, and AWS won the contract with the NSA last year, so it's not like Amazon doesn't have a strong government cloud storage business. But if I'm the DOD, why do I want to basically put all my eggs in the Amazon basket? Why wouldn't I want to spread it around a little bit to someone like Microsoft, which has experience working with the government, with DOD in many other areas, has a formidable, clearly cloud storage product. I think just strategically from that sense, uh, I can understand why you'd want to have two strong players as opposed to one behemoth. That was my main point for their follow-up question. Um, I don't think the this app marketplace kind of uh, point, I, I mean, maybe it made sense to them, but I don't think it truly resonated in the sense that um, the DoD is only looking for the pure commodity the, of- The infrastructure is what yes. they care about. That's you know, how secure is the infrastructure? Does it work? What capabilities do you have? How's it going to support what we do? It's not the- all the other third-party plugins and things uh, that come with AWS's ecosystem, or you know, to a lesser extent, Microsoft's. Yep. Uh, in Azure, it, it's just the infrastructure. Give me the piece. box, right? <laughs> and I'll pay you ten billion dollars over five right. years, right? And we, we've <laughs> talked about boxes in the past too, how that app ecosystem is needed in the defense uh, sphere. But obviously, that would probably be a little more secure and separate from the kind of general commercial infrastructure on AWS. Uh, so that that you know, existing ecosystem they have wouldn't be a factor, but that definitely needs to be built within the defense space as well. Mm -hmm. I wish we could have gone there. It's definitely a little bit more out there. But yeah, yeah what does the DOD really need? Um, how can you let an app marketplace be built kind of like Salesforce around uh, the data being stored in now Azure's private government cloud for the DoD. How can you now open up APIs through Azure um, to third-party developers who can make software for the troops on the ground, for the analysts in command and control, right. for all the different people, millions of people in the Department of Defense that all have different needs. Right. And a lot of what you have right now is super slow development. Programs can take years to get made. So they've there's a lot of an emphasis on getting to more agile development processes in, in defense, but it, it's moving slowly, kind of <laughs> ironically. Uh, and you also have a lot of, as we've seen in many other industries as well, duplicate IT spends. So a lot of people working on very similar problems and basically duplicating the same effort and work. Whereas if you had this more app ecosystem approach, uh, if someone else solved it, and gets you 90% of the way there, you could plug that in basically right. in a different context. Well, you're There's a unlocking lot of value. creativity, right? right? You're unlocking innovation. It's, it's the more, uh, you know, uh, democratic or, you know, capitalist model, which is to say, let people take a gamble and say, hey, if I have access to these APIs and these APIs give me access to this data, what right. software could I build for the different people in the DOD those people are going to need to have a budget, like buying, you know, an app on the app store. But 
I'm sure that could be carved out uh, if the DoD were behind this. And reward the app developers that create the killer app uh, based upon who wants to buy it and how much they're willing to spend on it, how much value does it provide to the end user. Um, and that whole system is miles away from, from happening. Um, but if you want to look at how to increase lethality, which was uh, Mattis's big thing, and there was three mechanisms for them to look at increasing lethality, and technology was one of them. So if you want to look at how can software and just innovation be unlocked to increase lethality, we have so much data and information. I think there's a usability problem, as well as just having what kind of AI could you apply to the data because it's so siloed. You know, it's usability, it's intelligence on the data because it's siloed, it's apps that can just uh, improve the quality of the data in the system. There's a whole, like, basically half of the Salesforce apps are just apps that improve data quality, whether removing duplicate data or just bad, you know, uh, bad right. data. Or adding, adding new fields or types of data to it that they're able right. to pull in from other sources data. and combining it. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of value to be unlocked there. Uh, I think Salesforce is definitely an interesting analog. Obviously, defense is a little more uh, security concerned than your typical enterprise. But... Yeah, but the the basic model is fundamentally right. similar. Yeah, exactly. Um, the uh, the ace for this whole model, the ace is that uh, we sell this equipment around the world. So if you have some kind of centralized, you know, app ecosystem model, um, all of that data is going to come back into the U.S. Right. So you're going to be able these things are, if they're connected. All the equipment you're making is connected. All these sensors are connected. And you want to now get these apps uh, that are built on top of your connected uh, war machines. Um, now you're going to have basically a backdoor into all of that in a centralized way, which I'm sure the U.S. government already has. But this would probably just be a lot cleaner uh, of a mechanism to get access to that stuff. But um, I guess we're not supposed to talk about that. Um, OK, another uh, tech monopoly. On the rise here, Google acquires Fitbit, $2.1 billion. This has kind of been in the rumor mill the past few days. And, um, I mean, this is clearly uh, Google's approach to try to uh, rival the Apple Watch and what they're doing with Apple Health. This is a big health play right. on Google's part. Um, I mean, Google's also done a lot of stuff with more uh, what I would call medical grade wearables with Verily as well in terms of clinical trials. I could definitely see some benefits in terms of hardware production and going from basically what is essentially you know, prototype hardware to being able to produce those at scale using the you know, uh, Fitbit supply chain and some of the hardware capabilities they have there. So I think that this is a huge health play for Google, definitely. Uh, and it fits into. Verily, as well as broader Google Health and the consumer side of it, and the things they want to do there. And so, you know, uh, Google had uh, or has this thing called Wear OS. So, right. so it's kind of interesting in the approach of uh, do you? Google's wrestled with this for years, which is do we just purely provide the operating system and enable the OEMs, the, the smartphone manufacturers, with Android? Or do we need to have a more integrated approach like Apple, uh, where we both own and create the hardware much more closely along with the software? Right. And they bought Motorola and they've uh, now it didn't they, work. <laughs> it didn't work. Now they, you know, they're still doing the Pixel. Yep. 
Um, as I think part of what you've seen is hardware makers becoming less or more wary of not owning the operating system. So Samsung has moved toward, they still obviously do Android devices, but trying to push stuff like wearables and smart TVs onto their own operating system, which they call Tizen. Uh, so that there's challenges in that most device makers, especially in a new category, aren't going to uh, by default say, hey, let's just do Android because they've seen that not work well mm-hmm. in other categories. So I think that them needing to get their own device and you know, make an acquisition here in that context makes a little more sense. This is a different landscape than uh, when the iPhone launched and basically all the OEMs and telecom companies were terrified of what uh, AT&T and Apple were going to do to take over the world and they needed an answer. And you know, Android kind of parachuted in and solved all those problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, you know, it's a different, different circumstances now. And some of their, their partners back then have learned from their mistakes and giving up too much power. Uh, and that means that this acquisition, you know, it makes sense. They needed to do it if they were going to compete with things like the Apple watch. Well, and, and, and it gives them, and what is the app? Why is the Apple watch so important in the world of health? Well, it gives you user generated data, um, constantly just passive data, uh, about these individuals. And now you're seeing all of these different healthcare apps, um, that it can be created based upon that data. And, um, I mean, it's a big driver, right? When you can bring this unique data to uh, the electronic medical record and you can now pair that up with, um, you know, Apple Health is also now making deals with Allscripts and other EMR companies. How can you put these two things closely together? Um, That unique data that you're bringing to the table is a is a very big strategic component of um, eventually unlocking a developer platform to let people build apps or services uh, based on the data that that an Apple or Google has about your health, right? Um, Interesting thing here at the end of this article is at the end of 2018, Apple owned about half of the global smart smart watch market in terms of units shipped. And uh, so that brings us to the to the next topic. So Apple came out with earnings recently. Uh, Our friend. Ben Thompson, this is from his, uh, I think he did the analysis or he, he found this graph somewhere. Um, basically, it's showing Apple's revenue, um, which they, they beat earnings, um, and uh, they had a very strong uh, uh, quarterly earnings call. So Apple revenue growing, iPhone revenue declining. You can see that in the purple. Um, and then if you look down at the yellow, that's services is going up. And then you kind of see the navy blue wearables also going up. So services and wearables are going up. One of the points that Ben makes in this article is that wearables is about to pass desktop computers, laptops, uh, Mac OS devices, basically, uh, in you know the next year in pretty short order, uh, that wearables could basically become the number two category of device for Apple, even beyond desktops, which right. is pretty, pretty incredible to yeah. see that uh, happening. Yep, exactly. Um, so it's very interesting. Uh, Apple launches Apple Plus or TV Plus. Apple, Apple. I think it's Apple Plus. Apple Plus today. Yeah. It's five bucks a month. And TV Plus, yeah. Apple TV Plus. Uh, <laughs> it's five bucks a month. It's free if you buy a device after September 10th. Yep. They have some, I don't, you know, I, I think they're creating a lot of original content to promote this. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. I think 
Um, I'm more personally excited for the Disney Plus um, uh, product, which comes out, I think, November 11th or 12th. Right. And um, but it'll be interesting to see. I think Apple just. They will get revenue off of this. Is it going to be the thing, the key thing that's driving services? No, I think it'll help. Um, I think they might get revenue. I doubt they get much, if any, profit. profit they might lose yes. money on it. I right. think the interesting piece of it is, does it help them then sell more Netflix subscriptions or other things through basically, you know, they have this kind of TV plus app marketplace going mm. on as well, where they have other streaming services that exist alongside uh, their own. And if this brings more people into basically buying those kind of streaming services through Apple, uh, then that could have some benefits longer term. And then, you know, then eventually that would see them potentially phasing out some of the TV plus content spending, uh, but still retaining basically more of that ecosystem. Um, yeah. Interesting to see if that's, that's how it plays out or not, but it definitely, yeah. I mean, they've got a lot of cash and this is an active area where basically all the big tech players are in it now. And the one, the one thing that I think is a big driver of the services revenue is the uh, income from Apple pay. Yeah, uh, I think they get 15 basis points on everything you're buying on Apple. And Apple Pay is now the, um, you know, most successful um, kind of uh, payments wallet, payment yeah. wallet, yeah. payment platform by throughput. Um, and yeah, they're crushing it. Very interesting to to make that connection when you just think about the number of Apple devices in the U.S. versus Android devices. And then you say that Apple is still winning the total throughput game. Right. Because that's they, kind they of have bonkers. The, they have the, the high end segment of the market. And it, it's, uh, I think in the US, it's pretty you know, closer to parity in terms of number of devices. Globally, obviously, Android has a huge advantage, uh, though not all of those are Google Android devices, if you look at China, for example. Uh, and I think that it goes to show that it's not just uh, you know number that makes up the value of a network. There's other factors like, you know, value throughput of spending, yep. types of users, usage, quality of right. users, engage. So there, there's a lot of different ways to measure network value. The the typical kind of like Metcalf's law way of looking at it is oh the maximum number, but it, it's actually a lot more nuanced if you're looking at you know network and network effects than just number of people. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Finishing off with a bang, uh, Mr. Uh, Zuckerberg. You know, they pick interesting photos of him here. Um, not a good look. <laughs> it's like the vein is, is popping out of his forehead. Um, but, uh, face, Facebook had a great earnings. Their operating margin was actually much higher than what wall street thought that wall street decided it was going to be in the 30% range of operating margin. I think it was about 41% in operating margin. The reason that they expected that to contract was Facebook's investment in all of the patrolling and kind of, uh, security and privacy and, and data um, scrubbing right. that, that Facebook said they'd have to invest in over the course of this year. So that was um, a big boost to them. They, they beat on earnings. They beat on revenue growth. Um, the other thing that was interesting is there's a third party that was tracking the growth, I believe, on ad spend on Instagram. And it was in the 40s percent mm. um, of, of, uh, of quarterly growth for Instagram ad spend, which is pretty uh remarkable um which which drastically outpaced the kind of overall social media ad spend growth i think we were looking at pinterest uh yesterday which which was below that i think um maybe not too much below that but still it's a 
Pinterest is at a billion dollars in revenue annually, um, and Instagram is at a much larger uh, foundation. So it's very interesting to see how um, Facebook just has so much growth still within. I think Facebook.com actually did fine as well, but but even the Instagram, uh, the other up and coming platform monopolies that they have are uh, really just continuing to fire on all cylinders, which I think was the main driver of why the, the stock in, is Instagram up Instagram so has been a huge growth driver in terms of revenue now, not just users for the last couple of years. And uh, it's really going strong. I think the interesting thing about Instagram is it becomes more even than Facebook is much closer to actual commerce. So like people making buying decisions, they've started to integrate these shopping features where you can you know, click yeah. to buy a product which eventually leads to a lot more revenue from them, not just from people doing more ads because then it, you're closer to direct spend uh, rather than kind of general brand advertising. It's you know, what they call kind of direct response advertising, which is a, and product advertising in particular, which is hugely lucrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you could also potentially get into capturing a percentage of goods sold at some point and that kind of thing. So th- there, there's a lot of revenue opportunities ahead for Instagram. I think the yeah, the Facebook product marketplace opportunities are very strong. Um, I would see them as a much more capable competitor to Amazon in that Google, sense than yeah. Google. Right. Google's tried to do Google shopping for and all these years, things for years and right? none of them have really worked well. The reason they're doing it is because again, the, that uh, product search, basically looking for a particular products to buy is the one of the most lucrative areas of search advertising. So yeah, you you've seen a, uh, Amazon crush this over the last couple of years, which is why Google has been trying to figure this out for, I don't know, a decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they haven't because they knew if Amazon ever went into this, it could take a chunk out of them and it, it's going to. And yeah. I think Facebook is a more credible uh, competitor to Amazon in that arena definitely than Google has been. Yeah, absolutely. And um, they've already gotten some marketplace stuff going in facebook right right where it's kind of like a craigslist competitor right uh where you see a whole bunch of things but now you know if that's kind of on the low end that's like everything and everything you could kind of sell and now what's happening on instagram is really at the maybe not necessarily the high end but the experience is 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 a much higher end experience much more curated experience starting through imagery Right. It's a lot of influencers um, yes. selling products or sponsored products in small businesses and that kind of yes. stuff, um, as well as there's some big businesses, obviously, that are um, quite successful. Right. But the, the, it's not like buying used goods or right. you know, services on Craigslist, which is basically the, the Facebook marketplace, mm-hmm. uh, as they call it. It's yeah. kind of an upscale version of Craigslist. Yeah, I, I'm I'm again, I'm, I'm you know, uh, I think in this area in particular, Facebook really has a lot of promise uh, ahead of it. So. Yeah, that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will talk to you next week.